Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is Stephen Peters, Investment Analyst at Charles Stanley and Personal Finance Writer Kate Bailey. In this week's Portfolio Clinic, we feature a reader who is aiming to generate a tax-free income in retirement. Stephen, what are some of the ways investors can achieve a tax-free income in retirement? Well, I'm a fund manager analyst uh, rather than a financial planner, so those types of complicated questions are best left to the experts. But for my side, ICE is a a pretty simple, straightforward way of getting your income up in a tax-free way. It's quite easy to set up an ISA. There's plenty of flexibility. They're quite um, long-standing vehicles now, so I wouldn't look too far away from those. And quite a a generous annual allowance as well, so um, in excess of 15k. Mm. Just thinking about filling the ISA then, what would you say are some of the best investments income investments to hold an ISA perhaps for somebody you know funding a retirement or you know even any other kind of uh, stage in life as I said funds are as good a place as any to look in the last seven or eight years there's been a, um, a big uh, number of launches of income-based products especially in the closed-ended investment trust world so today you can buy all manner of things you can buy funds that own care homes or you can buy funds that own hospitals and schools the infrastructure funds you can buy funds that own property debt all of these things are unusual assets alternative assets that you probably couldn't own in an open-ended fund but pay out a nice income and the uh, the closed-ended structure definitely lends itself well to those alternative more income-driven um, driven products. So, you know, many people would know about things like Hickel Infrastructure, things like Target Healthcare, which is the, the, the fund that owns care homes. Those types of things are definitely worth considering. They're not your traditional mainstream mm-hmm. equity investment trusts that people know, but um, they are, for, for people needing income, they're as good a place as any to look. How, how do we compare to traditional equity income? I mean, are, are they riskier um, and are they suitable, let's say, for everyone? Um, well, that's the key question. Mm. You know, the people listening to this will all have different risk tolerances and their attitude to risk will differ so for some people who are in the kind of growth stage of their life you know they might want to buy an equity income fund you know the well-known names the Invesco's and the Woodford's and the Artemis's and those types of people and then maybe they want to take the income and, and spend it or they want to take the income and roll it up through an accumulation unit. So for me, I'm 36, you know, I, I don't need that income, so I can buy these really good fund managers, roll the income up and get better capital growth. But these these kind of unlisted vehicles are absolutely fine within a portfolio context, as long as you've got diversification. For people who need income, I would always say get income from different sources. So get income from equity income, get income from commercial property, maybe from infrastructure, but always be aware of what you're buying and, and particularly the price you're paying for it right now. You mentioned um quite a range of funds mm. focus on income so is it actually quite easy to find investments for attractive income you know even in this um, low interest environment that we're in there's no there's no shortage of income what there is is the price that you pay for that income is going up so many of the listed investment trusts are trading at quite uh, reasonable premiums to asset value. So, for instance, you might be paying one pound five, one pound ten p for a pound's worth of assets. So, the risk to then is that you you buy one of these income-producing products, but actually you lose in the capital value um, when that discount perhaps turns to a, uh, that premium turns to a discount. So, you want to try and avoid that. You want to take a view as if I am I investing for the long enough term that if something goes from one pound ten to ninety five p and back to a pound, can I cope with that volatility? So 
Short answer, they're, they're suitable for most people within a diversified portfolio. There's no shortage of them, but just, uh, just be aware of what you're buying and what are the reasons why their prices might change in the future. On that note, sort of income investors, is there anything that you think we should um, particularly avoid at the moment? I don't think there's anything you should avoid. I think, to use a bit of kind of industry jargon, there's definitely been a re-rating of income-producing assets in the last, well, since the financial crisis. And by what I mean by that is that back then you could have bought, uh, a, you know, an investment trust, an equity income investment trust, for on a discount of 10, 15, maybe 20%. Today, you're probably paying a slight premium for that. You're paying £1.2, £1.3 for a pound's worth of assets. So not only have you had the asset values gone up, but you've had the share price discount remaked. So you've got to be really, really careful. There's no shortage. The price you pay, be careful. Obviously, you don't have that problem with open-ended funds. All you have to look at, though, is, um, or what you have to look at or have a view on, is whether the the value of, say, let's talk about equity income mm. companies, ones that pay good dividends, are they expensive companies? And what I'd say is that I've spoken to a lot of, let's look at UK, because I've been looking at UK quite recently, a lot of the equity income fund managers I'm speaking to right now are saying to me, be careful, a lot of these dividend-paying companies now are looking quite expensive. And a rise in UK interest rates. Now, we're not probably going to get that in the UK immediately. We'll probably get one maybe in the US sooner. Mm -hmm. A rise in interest rates, a change in economic environment could see, uh, you know, some weakness in some of the uh, share prices of some of these equity income favourites, the stalwarts that you see in these funds. So, And investors just have to be careful. Again, diversification is the nearest thing in investment to a free lunch. So pick good fund managers, diversify be long-term investors and you should be okay. Okay. On the subject of fund managers, the last two years have seen a number of high-profile managers leave their funds, examples including Angus Tullock, Neil Woodford and Anthony Bolton. When a manager leaves a fund, this puts investors in the difficult position of having to decide whether to stay with whoever's success is or leave the fund, whether to follow the manager to his new position or move into another fund. Kate, what are the main things investors need to ask themselves when deciding whether to stay or go? Well, I talked to quite a few people about this and there seem to be some quite clear things which you can think about. So first of all, I guess the thing is to not panic and, and think that you have to leave just because a high profile name has left. You need to think about the funds process and its style and its mandate. I mean, if all those things have stayed the same, and that's obviously a big part of the reason why you choose a fund, then there's no reason to necessarily leave. You need to think about whether that fund was managed by a large team or whether it's one kind of very crucial stock picker, um, some kind of maverick manager who who is kind of out on his own making decisions. I mean, often funds are managed by well-resourced teams with a big bank of analysts who, who are doing a lot of this kind of research. And often there will be a very set process and maybe stock screens, things like that, which, which define how stocks are chosen. And if that is the case, then one manager leaving doesn't necessarily mean that the, the fund will, you know, suddenly start underperforming. Um, and then you also just need to think, I mean, it can be a good time to reassess whether you still like this asset class. Do you still like this this whole kind of sector and area? If you do, you know, no need to move necessarily. Um, but also pe people say to have a list of alternatives. So if you are thinking of moving, maybe you don't need to move with the manager. Maybe you want to actually move to a different fund. Quite a few wealth managers said that you should have a kind of sub 
bench so you've got you know a few other funds which you which you're always looking at and which you might want to switch into instead what do you think investors need to consider when um, deciding whether to stay in a fund or move of a manager? I think it must be very difficult if you're an individual investor, maybe doing it by yourself or using a third-party platform, uh, as opposed to those of us like me who do this as a job. So it's very, very easy, as Kate said, to have a subspench. So you know that if a manager is going to leave, what the next cab on the rank is. I agree with all of the points that were made in the magazine and that Kate said about, um, you know, look at process, look at continuity. Um, The best example for this really is not an example from this year, but from a couple of years ago, which is Neil Woodford. Now, there was a lot of noise made about him leaving and rightly so. Very, very high profile manager, very successful manager. But his number two had as good as, if not a better track record than That's him. That's Mark Barnett. In Mark yeah. Barnett, absolutely. Yeah. Now, for those of us who weren't just focused on looking at open-ended funds, looked at investment trusts, we knew that Mark Barnett had run his, run his investment trust since 1997. Over that period, his track record was absolutely first class. So I remember on the day that the announcement came out, uh, Neil Woodford is leaving, uh, there was a lot of you know stress and hype and a lot of press comment. But we as a team sat back and went, actually, this isn't a bad thing. This is not a bad thing. Mark is a very, very good fund manager with a, a, a good track record. He's his own man. And we, we didn't have a problem. So with that regard, we think it, it valued uh, our clients that they were using a team who had a very wide knowledge of the industry who didn't need to panic. And to be quite frank, I think there was some panic in the mm. industry that yeah. day. So that's an example of sticking. Twisting, I think, as the magazine said, managers who are integral to the investment process, small teams when um, maybe the the level of experience beneath the main manager isn't quite what it should be. That's important. But I think also investors need to understand why a manager has been good. Have they just been good in the last few years because of style tailwinds? We spoke about income earlier. Or have they been good through a cycle over the very long term? Try and take a view on that, maybe take some advice on that, get some guidance from the professionals. And um, if you decide to move on, if the manager is absolutely uh, crucial to the process, then maybe it is time to uh, cut your losses or take your gains and and go somewhere else. Kate, would you like to highlight um, some situations where it's best to follow and and some situations where it's best to Um, stick? Yeah, I I guess it would be interesting to look at a couple Mm. of the biggest ones from this year. So Mm. we do quite different situations. We've had Angus Tullock, manager and Stuart Investors, Asia Pacific Leaders and Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Fund. Now, this was quite a kind of well signposted, I think, exit. And he's not leaving. He's just stepping down as the lead manager. So he'll still be there. And David Gate, who has been who has been in the company for a long time, mm-hmm. he's taking over um, as, as manager on Asia Pacific Leaders with Ashish Shore up. Um, so people seem to feel very comfortable about that. I mean, Angus will still be around. He's still yeah. going to be in And he's transitioning process. over nine months, isn't he? Yes. He won't actually even leave the fund till July exactly. next year. Yeah. So yeah. generally, people mm. seem very happy to, mm. to stick to stick there and, and not suddenly switch to another Asia-Pacific fund. Mm. But then quite a different one is Jason mm. Pidcock, manager of Newton Asian Income. This was a big surprise when he announced he'd be leaving for Jupiter. And people do feel seem to feel quite differently about that one. Quite a lot of people saying they might follow him because he has got 
um, such a kind of talent for stock picking, people believe, even though he does have a big team behind him at Newton. And that's that's something which is quite interesting about this move, because at Jupiter, it's a very different kind of setting. It's it's much more kind of managers doing mm. their own thing with less of this big resource behind them. So it will be interesting to see how his new fund performs there, I guess, without this kind of big bank of analysts. But a lot of people seem to think they want to move with him. Yeah. I'd, I'd make two points on that. Mm. First of all, um, going to the um, um, Angus Tarlett, David Gate mm. issue. Again, David Gate has been running an investment trust for many, many Pacific years. Assets Pacific Assets Trust, yeah. Uh, he's, it's been an exceptionally mm. strong performing trust since he took it over from F&C whenever it was, 2009-10. The sustainability franchise... Uh, so the first state's thing is sustainability, which is kind of good, being good, engaged investors mm. in, in Asian equities and global equities now. David isn't doing it in any different way to Angus. They might have slightly different emphasis. Um, they because, might... yeah, a few people did say to me that this sustainability thing will slightly change the mandate. Do you think that's... Case, I, I don't and i tell you why i think they all think about it in the same way but david's portfolios asia pacific sustainability pacific assets um is just a slightly purer version of uh of the the overall first state process sustainability is integral to everything they do the way they think about companies Yes, they might own a gold mining company in the Asia Pacific fund that they wouldn't own in the sustainability fund. But fundamentally, how they think is, is, is very, very similar. The main difference is that the sustainability in Pacific assets, uh, the fund and the trust, mm. are slightly smaller cap yeah. than yeah, so. the, the open-ended fund because the open-ended fund is so enormous. Now, that might be a, a bit of a challenge. All I would say, though, is that turnover across all of those products is very, very low. And it's not like their teams are in silos. You know, David will know the mega caps as well as knowing the mid caps. So from that side of it, it might there might be some, you know, change at the edges and there might be some problems at the edges. But I don't envisage a big, big problem on Jason Pidcock and, and Newton and and, uh, and Jupiter. I completely agree with what some of the people in the in the magazine and what you said earlier. Exactly the same uh, you know, we, we we can all ask questions if we're in the industry mm-hmm. about quite how uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, engaged and, and utilised that big bank of Newton analysts are. <laughs> it was definitely a star manager fund, though. And, you know, this is where you have to be a bit careful where the actual reality doesn't match the marketing. And I think for some people in the industry, there was a bit of a perception that the reality didn't match the marketing of that fund. But good luck to him at Jupiter. Um, you know, it, hopefully it should be a, um, you know, a successful move for him. What I'd note is that Newton Asian income fund is halved in size since he mm. left. But performance is still okay. I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, for, for investors who don't have, as you said, the, the kind of depth of information that, that you and your role um, have on a day-to-day basis. I mean, how, how do you think people can do the, the right level of due diligence to get all of this detail about managers? I think it's really tough. I think it's really tough and I don't envy people who are trying to run their own portfolios, listeners to this and readers of the magazine, who who don't have that day-to-day information. However, if they're long-term, if they're patient, if they do the right level of due diligence before buying a fund and they don't panic and they realise that markets move in cycles, I think that's your friend. Don't get caught up in the hype and the noise and the and the oh this is underperformed for the last three months so you must sell ignore that mm-hmm. be really really long term take advice when you need it recognize the limits to your knowledge and you should be fine okay some useful points there now later this month the FTSE indices latest rebalancing will take effect this concerns share indices 
but it'll actually impact a number of funds. And Kate has been looking at which funds and how they'll be affected. Kate, what kind of funds will the FTSE rebalancing affect and why? Um, well, it's affecting several popular investment trusts. Um, obviously, these are companies uh, listed, so go up and down in terms of share price like, like any other stock. So quite a few of them have now made uh, the FTSE 250 and a few indices below that. So we've got Renewables Infrastructure Group, which is going to join the FTSE 250, 250 high yield and FTSE 350 high yield. And we've also got Real Estate Investment Trust Assurer, and Harbourvest Global Private Equity as well, and that's entering the FTSE small cap and all share. And then there are quite a few trusts going onto the FTSE reserve list too. There's about five there, including some of our top 100 funds. So it's quite interesting because obviously if you hold a tracker, for example, tracking the FTSE 100 or 250, which you well might, um, you'll now have exposure to these trusts, which you might not have realised. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. Um, we should also say that uh, three major stocks have fallen off the FTSE 100 at this latest review. So Morrison's, G4S and Megit no longer in the FTSE 100 after periods of poor performance. So they will be dropping down to the 250. Okay. When um, investment trusts are promoted, um, is um, is this a good thing, or um, you know, should you know, should what do investors need to consider? Um, I don't think it's a good or a bad thing. I think there are times when it presents an opportunity. The opportunity comes before the move, and particularly when a trust might be trading at a discount, and it gets into an industry, into a into an index because everything else has fallen more than it. At that point, a trust may be at a discount. It then gets promoted or likely to be promoted into an index. And then there will be buying from the passive funds that that you mentioned, the tracker funds that you mentioned. At that point, they're kind of dumb buyers. They're not buying because of the opportunity. They're just buying because the computer tells them to. At that point, you can make some uh, shorter term but quite reasonable gains just by basically trading the discount. You you know, I remember there was a, a Canadian trust a couple of years ago listed in London that this happened to markets fell around it it performed okay so everything fell below it so it got promoted into the index it was trading on a 13 percent discount as the index rebalanced that discount went away um so you made a 13 percent return plus you made your nav return and over six months you made you know comfortable good double digits 20 30 percent returns that's quite unusual movements like this when things are going up because of uh fundraisings or you know index changes i'm less bothered about it's just part of the day-to-day month-to-month noise of the industry and it's interesting and it's newsworthy can you make money out of it probably not turning to the tracker funds you do do investors for example do do we need to be concerned do you need to do anything or is it you know i mean no i don't i don't don't think so i mean it's probably worth Mm. thinking about if you hold funds and you also hold stocks. I mean, I wonder if maybe you need to think about if you're overexposed, overexposed or, or yeah. underexposed. Yeah. Maybe if you like some of these stocks mm. um, and you were previously holding them in, in trackers, but now you're not because they've fallen off. Maybe you might want to buy them. I don't know. So it's just worth thinking about what you actually hold and if you hold it in more than one place, I guess. But definitely not something to suddenly rush out and sell or buy things just because they've things have moved in and out of this top 100 that brings us to the end of this week's podcast so it just remains to thank stephen peters investment analyst at charles stanley and kate bearley you can find more on saving for a tax-free retirement fund manager moves and the FTSE indices rebalancing in this week's investors chronicle and on the website 
Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.